0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at gardencult.com.
2: mother nature is about diversity you know and the more diverse she is the more stable everything will be uh as we you know lose species and everything else it's highly indicative of of what's going on in the rest of nature um so the edge effect that i encourage here on the farm you know the inclusion of you know permaculture we've got the berries and the fruit trees that help as wind breaks they they also you know help as uh, insectiaries for all the different beneficials, Um, the the different beetles and and, uh, spiders and things that are nocturnal uh, can move into the field crops and we try to keep uh, beds within the fields uh, in different stages of growth too so that there can be, you know, just a a profusion of life forms. Uh, You know, to think of one cup of soil having 10 billion living organisms in it and when you stand on the soil and look around you you think of how many cupfuls there are is incredible organic food
3: it's bought it's sold it's debated but what is organic food this week on meat and three we travel into the world of organics in the land we now refer to as the united states Indigenous communities have been growing their food organically for centuries, but organic food in the U.S. is now tied to a slew of technical regulations required for certification. The United States Department of Agriculture defines organic food as food produced without the use of antibiotics, pesticides, growth hormones, synthetic fertilizers, bioengineering, or ionizing radiation. That's why organic food can be more costly than food produced with polluting chemicals. When the organic food movement went mainstream in the United States in the 1970s, it wasn't just about compiling a list of regulations. Its roots dug deep into efforts to protect human health and the environment. Our stories this week explore the meaning of organic. We start off with an Organic Food 101, then we report on how corporations in the United States have influenced the movement, and we hear from the Gorzinski family about why they penned themselves as ornery instead of organic. In our final segment, we bring you a story on how ties between white supremacy and organic food challenged a farmer's market to its core. I'm Katie Mosman Wadler, and this is Meat and Three.
0: Meat and Three. Meat and three. Meat and three.
3: One meat, three sides.
0: Food, news,
4: and storytelling.
5: A square meal. For your ears. Meat
0: and three. To
3: kick us off, we turn to Wythe Marshall and Melissa Metric, the hosts of Fields on HRN, for a brief history of organic food in the United States and answers to some frequently asked questions. Here's Wythe.
5: The history of organic farming in the U.S. is a little bit complicated because these terms um, are debated. But generally, you could say lots of people grew organically uh, in the sense that they were uh, rotating crops and fixing nitrogen. Uh, and doing all kinds of other practices um, before the the term organic came into use.
3: Throughout the 20th century, monoculture and using synthetic nitrogen and pesticides became the norm.
5: And so thus, you know, organic farming, uh, which is a term, is associated with a few people. Kind of in the 1940s is, is when it, that term sort of takes off. Uh, often people talk about Sir, Sir Albert Howard and Lord Northbourne and a few other figures, and and even before them, Rudolf Steiner, who's really kind of a religious guy, but was really into uh, what he called biodynamic agriculture, which is very, very similar um, in a lot of ways. Howard,
3: Northbourne, Steiner, and others started focusing on soil health, and their ideas really started taking off in the 1960s and 70s, bolstered by the burgeoning environmental movement and books like Silent Spring.
5: And uh, over the 70s, you get certification agencies. So there's a, there's finally a, a law passed.
3: That law is the Organic Foods Production Act, which leads to the creation of the National Organic Food Program. Farms who want to use the USDA organic label on their products have to become certified.
5: The National Organic Program is basically a list of chemicals you can't use, uh, but it does have certain procedures you have to follow. And so that requires, yeah, that certifying agent to come out and sort of see that your farm is is doing a certain process to become organic. So
3: that's a very short history of the organic movement in the U.S., but things are always changing. Take, for example, the present debate around hydroponics, which is a system of growing food in water instead of soil.
5: The downside, you might say, from the organic ag perspective is you're not growing in soil, so you're not stewarding land, improving soil health.
6: I think one thing with the um, hydroponics debate uh, Being organic is also the idea of the amount of resources that they use, and I guess it's also that broader term of sustainability, right? That's Melissa. Her point is that, though hydroponics don't
3: improve soil health, a small hydroponic farm may be a more sustainable system than a large, monocropped, certified organic farm.
6: So, for example, if you're using, instead of using these certain um, chemical fertilizers and things like that, you would... Use compost teas. So, with compost teas, in using those, you would actually have more like what I spoke um, about—more of these, this like microbiome within your solution. At the same time, there are some who are vehemently against
3: classifying hydroponics as organic. Here's John Gorzinski, founder of Gorzinski Ornery Farm, who you'll hear from again later in the episode.
2: It's strictly materials mixed together in a water solution circulated around the roots of a plant um, inside under lights, not even, you know, natural lighting. So it's so labor-intensive and so offensive on so many different levels uh, to what the word organic meant." Clearly, the term organic gets complicated
3: pretty fast. And ultimately, so much about it is simply marketing.
6: I feel like it's really tricky because, you know, if if you're at the supermarket, like, yes, maybe you want to go by that organic label, but I I still think it's, it's very kind of complicated um, because it is also the sense of like, who do you want to support? Do you want to support these smaller farms that maybe couldn't afford to get the organic certification? Or do you want to support maybe these larger agribusinesses who got to get certified organic? Being a grower, just knowing all the like complications with that label in general, if I go to the farmer's market and I kind of know the farmers and I know that it's a small farm, I don't necessarily care about that label as much.
5: But it, it can be tricky. It's not clear that you know, organic food is is amazingly better. Um, I I do think on average it is probably better quality and better for you, but it's probably a slight difference. And the the big critique of it from consumers is that it costs more.
3: This leads to our last major point about organic food. The fact that it's usually more expensive. One USDA report showed that retail price premiums for organic foods ranged from 7% above the non-organic price for spinach to 82% for eggs.
5: So it's passing on a cost in theory um, to the consumer from the producer because the producer is being asked in many cases to essentially not grow stuff for a while and then grow less of it. So if you're trying to do organic ag where you're growing more different kinds of crops um, and you're not using some of those chemicals, you're trying to use more natural solutions, Um, you might have more loss because there might be some pests. Uh, so it might basically make your job a little harder, but the food you're producing on the other hand should be sort of of a superior quality. And really the deeper thing is you should be restoring the health of the soil, the, the managing the land better.
6: And granted, a lot of us, especially living in cities, do we really have time to like research everything in the supermarket? Maybe not. But maybe that's a better reason to go to your farmer's market. So then you could actually ask the people who are selling the produce so they are so much closer to where that food actually comes from and the techniques that they use to grow it.
3: Next up, Sasha Cohen brings us a quick explainer on how corporate consolidation and greenwashing have transformed the organics
7: industry. When you go to the grocery store and you pick out your produce or your eggs or your meats or really anything at all, there's a strong possibility you'll have to make a choice. Do you want the organic kind or the non-organic kind? Usually the organic option will be a touch more expensive. The label might try to lure you with the promise that these eggs came from happy chickens or something. But as organic products have become more mainstream, the real meaning behind that organic label has inevitably shifted. And that's in large part because the biggest players in the agriculture industry are eager to cash in on this growing demand.
8: I mean, I think just generally speaking, when you have, you know, the large agricultural interests that are trying to corner the organic market, there's going to be this pressure to, to get big or get out. I mean, that's been industrial agriculture's motto for the last century.
7: <laughs> and, um... That's Amanda Starbuck, a senior researcher and policy analyst at Food and Water Watch. Her research focuses on corporate agriculture's greenwashing and takeover of our food systems.
8: And so we've, we've seen that, I think, most vividly is, you know, watering down and a stripping away of, you know, organic standards.
7: The organic movement began as a reaction to chemical farming and corporate consolidation in agriculture. But now the conventional agriculture lobby has a lot of sway over the USDA, the institution responsible for setting federal standards for what does and does not count as organic. And this agribusiness or big ag lobby has made huge efforts to make organic certification standards more lenient. So, what does it really mean when you decide to buy organic?
8: Soil health is at the very heart of organic farming. Um, the idea of investing in your soil, of using soil health as a way to address problems that chemicals usually make up for. You know, but what what you know big ag has really tried to do is turn organic. F- away from its foundation of being about soil health and just make it farming without chemicals. So you can have a large monoculture of corn that doesn't use chemicals and it's called organic. You know, maybe it's next to... And a, or an organic farm that is smaller scale and, you know, practices rotational grazing and rotates crop and livestock and that sort of thing. And they're, they're very different, but they would both be under that organic label. And similarly, when it comes to, to livestock as well, unfortunately, you know, Big A is trying to do as much as it can to allow, you know, even systems that would be unmistakable factory farms also be under that organic label.
7: This sort of industrialized organic farming, it veers pretty far from the roots of the organic movement. A lot of it has to do with vertical integration. In order to maximize profit, a massive corporation will buy up small farms and sell their products under its own label. So these giant companies end up owning every part of the production process, while the farmers they partner with end up making very little and are often saddled with debt. This has been happening to conventional farms for decades, but now the same thing is happening with organic agriculture. Here's Amanda again.
8: We see the same thing in organic, I would say, that we see, you know, in conventional system as well. And for me, it really shows that you, you can't fix the food system if you don't address corporate consolidation, right? You can have big organic just like you can have big conventional, but the larger and more power that these corporations, you know, are able to get, the more watered down that system is going to be.
7: Critics say organic farming is unsustainable because it can't possibly produce enough food for the global population. But Amanda thinks the real problem is that America's conventional agribusiness is driven by profit above all else.
8: So if these agribusinesses really wanted to feed the world, like they would scale back from this system that, you know, constantly overproduces grain crops and the only reason why they do that is because there's markets for ethanol there's markets for livestock feed these are not directly feeding people if they really wanted to feed people they would divest from that system and they would invest in you know more integrated crop and livestock systems that can feed local communities we have enough calories to feed the world as it is right now it's just poverty and inequality is what causes hunger it's not just about yield
7: in response to big agriculture's influence on organics, Amanda stresses the importance of regenerative agriculture. Instead of referring to a set of standards, regenerative agriculture conveys a kind of ethos. You
8: know, a lot of the, the corporate powers will say that, well, this is the only way to feed the world. But that's just, you know, not only a lack of imagination, that things could be any different, but also you're closing your eyes to examples across the country of farmers who are farming more regeneratively and are making money and are able to feed their families and lower their environmental footprint and everything.
7: To learn more about corporate consolidation in agriculture, go to foodandwaterwatch.org and check out the resources in our show notes.
3: We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a short break.
1: This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, Garden Design and Coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at gardencult.com. Welcome
3: back to Meet n 3 As you just heard, the conventional agriculture lobby has pushed the organic label away from the original heart of the movement. In our next story, Anna Oaks speaks with two farmers, John and Tim Grzinski, to learn more about their move away from organics to something else.
9: If you walk through the Union Square Farmer's Market on a Saturday morning, you might notice one stall in particular. Through the entrance to the Gorzinski ornery farm stand is a maze of wooden crates. They're bursting with fresh, bushy greens, spiraling carrots, and piles of spring flowers, presumably edible. The stand is a microcosm of the 20-acre farm in Narrowsburg, New York. In late April, a group of us from Heritage Radio Network had the chance to visit. John Gorzinski started the Gorzinski Organic Farm in 1982, but in 2000, they decided to drop the organic label.
2: My family sat down uh, at the dinner table, and we discussed it, and uh, we crossed the word organic off. And uh, like my wife said, ornery. (laughs) Gersinski Ornery Farm. And why ornery? Oh, I guess she felt that's how I felt about things a little bit, that I was a little bit ornery.
9: When John first started farming in the 1970s, the organic movement stood for a radical rejection of widespread farming practices that were destructive for both human and environmental health. John was deeply involved in the movement. He was elected chair of NOFA, the National Organic Farmers Association of New York, in 1979, and he worked closely to develop a standardized certification process. At the time, it was
2: necessary. The amount of fraud going on was amazing. You know, people would dump carrots from, you know, a a conventional bag into an organic bag and the conventional farmers would say, oh yeah, I'm organic.
9: But by 1996, when John was part of a group working to nationalize the certification process, the meaning of organic had shifted away from the origins of the movement.
10: I believe it was Whole Foods and a Monsanto lobby got it changed to allow all these different synthetics so that they could have these large corporate farms produce organic produce cheaply and sell it, you know, corporately, like they, you know, the, the Walmart model of production.
9: That's Tim Gorzinski, John's son and the co-owner of the farm. He's taking over to run the farm as John steps back. The switch to ornery isn't because the Gorzinski farm can't certify as organic.
10: It's because we won't. It's not strict enough for us. It's not doing what it's supposed to do.
9: Ornery farming does have consequences that the Gorzinskis have to account for, the chickens, for example, are at risk of being eaten by foxes because they aren't shut inside the chicken coop. The crops themselves can be damaged by insects or woodchucks because the Gorzinskis don't use aggressive chemical pesticides. And mice sometimes eat through the seed stores.
10: So, like, uh, the reason I let the fox here, why I wouldn't just kill the fox, is because he also eats all the mice. They're fantastic at killing mice, and mice are a massive problem as well. For the Gorzinskis,
9: the benefits outweigh the downsides. The adaptations they have to make boost the farm's resilience, especially in comparison to monocultures, even the organic ones. In the end, it's about a lot more than being organic.
10: There are hundreds of organic sprays, but I don't use any of them. I've tried, but again, they kill without discretion. They kill everything. And then if you don't have any bugs, the birds don't come. If you don't have any birds, then you don't have a fox or a hawk. So it's just trying to let the natural systems balance themselves without pushing your finger
2: on the scale too hard, you know?
9: Permaculture practices like crop rotation and crop diversity are better for the farm.
2: A small farm like ours has been uh, proven to be 600 times more productive.
9: And staying away from chemical fertilizers and pesticides is healthier for the farmers.
10: More than anything, I think I'm probably a greedy person in that I don't wish to die from cancer if I can help it.
9: For now, the Gorzinskis see little point in working within the certification system to reform the organic label.
10: I think just the way our system works, out, I think it's beyond repair just because the, the corporate lobby is so powerful and it, we're just a bunch of small, small farms. That's why they expect to continue calling
9: themselves ornery over organic.
10: Beyond that, I don't want to encourage the use of a word that is simply a marketing term and has nothing to do with or, or so far removed from what the original movement was about.
9: Look out for the Gorzinski Ornery Farm on the west side of the Union Square Farmer's Market every Saturday. They have a stand piled high with rich, earthy vegetables, wooden crates, and the odd snail, if you're lucky.
3: Before we continue, a quick content warning. The following story discusses white supremacy and mentions white supremacist violence. Maya Bernstein-Schallett, Caroline Fox, and Carmen Sherlock bring us a story about how one farmer's market was faced with a challenge to its core values, and how organizers fought to make it a safer space for everyone. Here's Maya.
4: Every Tuesday and Saturday in Bloomington, Indiana, the community farmer's market hosts a vibrant display of fresh fruits and vegetables, all from local vendors. But while some come for the fresh produce, others, like Abby Eng, are more focused on the community.
11: I lived all the way on the east side of town. So it wasn't really the most convenient thing for me without a car to just take a bus back and forth on a Saturday morning. Um, And also the produce was generally more expensive than I could really afford at the time. So I would go to Kroger or other places to get my groceries.
4: Abby volunteers with Democracy for Monroe County, a group that supports progressive, grassroots initiatives in the area.
11: They were always looking for people to volunteer. And so I'd be like, "Okay, um, I'll just go to the Farmer's Market and sit there and volunteer as part of my duties. In the summer of
4: 2019, an FBI interview with a known white supremacist, Nolan Brewer, was released by BuzzFeed. In the transcript, he mentioned two American Identity Movement member names that ring a bell for the Bloomington Farmer's Market community.
11: People were like, hey, isn't that Doug and Sarah from Brown County who has that farm and they've been at the farmer's market?
4: It wasn't the first time that Doug Mackey and Sarah Dye of Schooner Creek Farm were identified as white supremacists.
11: People that I had known were like, yeah, we've, we kind of like heard this before. I was like, wow, like, so this has been just under the radar for a while and among some circles were common knowledge and no one ever said anything.
4: The American Identity Movement was founded in 2016 by Iraq War veteran Nathan Domingo to, as he claims, quote, raise white racial consciousness, end quote. They believe that the United States was founded as a country for white people and white power and hope to reverse the historical gains of minoritized races in the past hundred years. Domingo helped plan the violent Unite the Right protest in Charlottesville in 2017, their main goal is spreading white nationalist ideology.
11: To do that, they will, like dress well, be like, you know, like we're just everyday doctors, lawyers, dentists, and so on. We're not like rednecks, you know. We're not people from the countryside or rural areas who don't have any jobs or any education. Like, we're well-educated people who just believe that America should return to its dominant white roots or something like that.
4: A lawsuit is ongoing to determine whether preventing Doug and Sarah's stand at the market would violate their First Amendment right to free speech. According to Alison Hope Alcon, a food justice scholar and author of Black, White and Green, Farmers Markets, Race and the Green Economy, it's
12: not uncommon for white supremacists to embrace organic food. I think there's a bunch of different stories of white supremacy in the farmers market. Um, and or in the organic food movement, one is that there was a real love of organic food uh, among the Nazis. And this idea that pure food for the pure race was kind of a, a trope. Uh, Hitler was vegetarian. So there was a kind of progressive food politics of the Nazis.
4: For people of color in the Bloomington community, the presence of known white supremacists at the farmer's market was a matter of safety. So Abby began to organize No Space for Hate to prevent Doug and Sarah's stand from selling their organic produce.
11: I started organizing it in July of 2019 and just kind of wrote a letter to the Farmers Market Advisory Council about the issue and had people sign on to it, being like, this is not a safe space.
4: At the farmers market, Abby began passing out documented evidence of Sarah and Doug's beliefs to shoppers. But the response from white progressive foodies there to enjoy the local wares wasn't always warm.
11: People were like, hey, you know, you, Abby, like, I think you're on the wrong track here. She's a pretty white mother. She can't really be this white supremacist. She really can't. She's too pretty. She's too nice. Her tomatoes taste too good. A lot of people told me she's too beautiful to be a white supremacist. And like these were comments that often appeared in like Farm Waste Market meetings where people said, oh, I've just, she's always treated me nicely. Like, she's never said anything bad to me. And I'm like, I wonder why she's never said anything bad to you. Like, of course she's not going to say anything bad to you.
4: Even Sarah Dye attempted to win Abby over.
11: Well, she was behind her booth, and she, like, waved at me, and I looked at her, and then she handed she had a tomato, and she, like, held it out to me. I think she was very much trying to be like, you know, like, I'm trying to do this gesture of goodwill. I'm not a bad person, like like this person is saying. And... Trying to make this very public gesture of like, oh, look, like she rebuffed my tomato. I don't even like tomatoes.
4: In her research, Allison has found that the whiteness of liberal people can often serve as a shield from recognizing underlying structures of white supremacy. These structures exist in all food spaces, even the ones that pride themselves on
12: progressive values. Honestly, if you'd asked me, you know, before last year, what I expected to see in the Bloomington farmer's market, I would have expected to see this kind of, you know, very affluent, educated, liberal kind of white, uh, uninvestigated whiteness, white privilege. And it is certainly a form of white supremacy because it's it's a way that whiteness becomes equated with goodness and with having stuff, right? And with material benefits and that blackness and other like racialized categories don't.
4: Abby felt the effects of this.
11: To me, it was very difficult because they found it easier to sympathize with her and to say like, oh, I could see myself going down that train of thought, you know. And that's very hard to hear as a person of color. For someone to readily be like, oh, you know, I feel more sympathy, even if that's not what they're saying bluntly. But it felt like they were centering her a lot and not thinking about the effects of people who are at risk of recruitment, who are at risk of feeling unsafe at the market.
4: The reluctance of the farmers market community to take action exposed holes within what plenty of white liberals considered to be a safe space. Something particularly challenging for the white progressive folks was that Doug and Sarah just didn't fit the image of who they think white supremacists are.
11: A lot of people in their heads, when they think about white supremacy and white nationalism, they think about more overt forms of that, like the KKK. But people hadn't, weren't aware or didn't know about the way that white supremacy was kind of trying to rebrand itself into something more wholesome. And so a lot of people had trouble believing that Sarah died until she admitted it. And even after then, people just had trouble thinking about her as someone who is a white supremacist or a member of the American identity movement.
4: Allison recognized this behavior from her research on whiteness in farmers markets.
12: My understanding is that most of the white liberals in Bloomington are like, can you all just stop complaining and making this a problem so we can have a lovely little farmer's market back? And so it really shows the way that this kind of liberal, much more implicit version of whiteness is willing to line up with white supremacy when their pleasure is being disturbed. For Allison, white
4: resistance to change at the Bloomington Community Farmers Market represents a challenge for organic food spaces everywhere.
12: The idea that like organic food was really about, you know, environmental sustainability and like and creating and imagining like a new way of relating to each other as people and honestly just a real failure of the imagination in my opinion on the point on the the part of sustainable food communities in Bloomington. You know, like, they have a chance to do something right, and they're, they're not doing it.
4: The reckoning in Bloomington leaves farmers markets across the country with a reminder
12: to reflect. You know, what are these markets for? What are they trying to accomplish in the world? And how is, like, local exchange a strategy for larger social change?
4: Just last week, a farmers market representative confirmed that Schooner Creek Farm has not been present at the farmers market this year. Doug Mackey and Sarah Dye have not renewed their vendor contract. As the definitions of organic food
3: grow and change, farmers and consumers across the U.S. will continue to shape their own. We'll be here to bring you those stories and more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Meet in 3. Special thanks this week to Kat Johnson, Sasha Linden-Cohen, Anna Oaks, Maya Bernstein-Schallett, Caroline Fox, and Carmen Sherlock. Meet 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Moswin-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meat and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meatin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.